From the first century to our own day, the teaching of Jesus has been revolutionary, turning worldly values and principles completely upside down. Today on Truth For Life, Alistair Begg draws our attention to a passage where Jesus addresses the issue of status and privilege, calling his followers to a radically different priority. Mark chapter 10 and verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to them, to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. One short sentence, four simple words found here in the passage we've just read underscore the fact that the followers of the Lord Jesus are to operate by principles and valuations that are vastly different from the world around them. Now, you must look and find those four words. There are actually two sentences uh, of just four words in the passage we read. I'm not going to turn it into a quiz. One of them is in verse 39, we can, the answered sentence. And the other one, which is the one that we have as our title for this morning, is the first sentence of verse 43, not so with you. Not so with you. Worldly ideas of status and privilege, Jesus is teaching, have no place in the alternative society, which is the kingdom of God. One of the great lies that exists almost in every generation is the idea that the more the people of God look like, sound like, act like, live like, 
those who are not the people of God, the better able God's people then will be able to reach their generation. The New Testament doesn't bear that out, nor does church history bear it out. Instead, church history bears out what the New Testament teaches, namely that God's people are always at their most effective in an alien culture when both by their life and lifestyle they are so clearly countercultural. And not least of all, when it comes to the issues of status and privilege. And what we discover in this passage is that the measure of an individual's greatness is not the number of servants in their house, but is the extent to which that individual is prepared to live in the service of others. And Jesus doesn't pull his punches. His language is radical. Look at verse 44. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. You want to have a position of significance, says Jesus, then let me tell you how to do it. Now, we might have imagined that the disciples would have got a hold of this instruction by this time, because after all, this is not the first occasion in which Jesus has given them this tutorial. And I want you just for a moment to turn back two pages in your Bible, probably two, maybe three, to chapter 8 and verse 29, which really provides for us the sort of pivotal point in the Gospel of Mark. Up until this uh, declaration by Peter, Mark has been providing a portrait of Jesus of Nazareth. He's the one who calms the sea. He's the one who casts out demons. He's the one who heals the sick, and so on. He is the one who proclaims the good news of the kingdom of God and calls men and women to repent and to believe. And then, at this moment, along the journey, Jesus has asked his disciples what people in the community are saying about him, whether they're getting the idea of who he is. And, of course, a variety of answers come back, and then Peter manages to hit it right. Jesus says, how about you folks? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers in verse 29, you are the Christ— or you are the Messiah. Now, what Peter says is true, but just what he knows about that and what he means by that is so clearly inadequate as we're about to discover. It's going to take some time for these disciples. Indeed, after the resurrection, it will take until then for them to really get this picture. Because a Messiah king who would suffer and die was actually the last thing that they expected or that they wanted. And so it's no surprise that when Jesus then, verse 31 of chapter 8, began to teach them what it meant for him to be Messiah, that the response of Peter to that is to say, oh no, that's not what we're thinking about. And so Peter rebukes Jesus in verse 32 of chapter 8, and Jesus then gives instruction to his disciples concerning the nature of the values of a kingdom. And that's when he says, if anyone wants to come after me, he needs to take up his cross and follow me. Hence the significance of the rich young ruler having to lay down that which stood in the way, and so on. If you want to save your life, you'll lose it. If you seek to uh, lose your life for my sake in the gospel, you will find it. So, you have a prediction of the passion. You have the response of the disciples. You have the instruction of Jesus. The same thing happens again in chapter 9, and right around the same place in the chapter, verse 31 of chapter 9, 
Jesus is teaching his disciples again, and he predicts his passion. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed, and so on. That is then followed by an argument on the part of the disciples. You will notice if your Bible is open, Jesus asked them, what were you talking about on the way? They were embarrassed to point out that they were arguing about who was going to be the first, who was the greatest. So Jesus gives them this instruction concerning the values of the kingdom, and they completely ignore them. This uh, matter of my passion, he says, is a necessity. The Son of Man must do this. It is an absolute certainty. And now, once again, in chapter 10, he returns to the same thing, and we have the third prediction of his passion. And as on previous occasions, what we've now come to expect, regretfully, is that the disciples do not make a very good job of it. First of all, and this is the only thing I wrote in my notes in terms of a heading, was verse 32, he told them what was going to happen to him. He told them what was going to happen to him. Now, there's nothing genius in that, is there? Because that's actually what verse 32 says. And he does so in the context of their heading up to Jerusalem. If you know your Bible at all, you know that people, the pilgrims always went up to Jerusalem. Now, this is the way up to Jerusalem. This is where the tribes, uh, Psalm 122, this is where the tribes go up. Or earlier in the Psalms, who may ascend the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place. The, the, the journey of pilgrimage was always a journey upward to Jerusalem. That was true not only on the ascent from the east, which was a climb, but it was true, if you like, philosophically, theologically, that the people of God were always going up when they went to Jerusalem. It was a routine journey for pilgrimage, going there for celebration, for festivals, and for worship. But Jesus now says this routine journey is not going to be a routine journey for me. And what he's telling his disciples is this, that he is going up to Jerusalem to worship by the offering of himself. He is the good shepherd leading his sheep, going up to Jerusalem where he is about to lay down his life for the sheep. And it is surely this, this approach of Jesus, which accounts for the fact that in verse 32 we are told that the disciples were amazed— or, as it is in the NIV, astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Now, Luke, who is our detail man, helps us in this, because he says of Jesus that he set out resolutely for Jerusalem. In other words, he didn't simply put Jerusalem into his GPS, but the way in which he set off for Jerusalem said something about himself said something about his sense of anticipation. I must go, he says. It is a divine necessity. Chapter 9, I am definitely going. Chapter 10, as I go up to Jerusalem, the current that will run through you as you observe me stride in that direction will fill you with both amazement and with fear. And so it is that although the details differ between the various accounts— one thing remains true in each of them, and that is that although some have more detail than others, and none has more detail, incidentally, than chapter 10, each of them finishes with the phrase, 
and after three days, rise again. And after three days, rise again. Now, the disciples didn't fully get this as clear as we read on, but the fact is also clear that Jesus views the certainty of his mission, the necessity of his mission, not in terms of calamity, but in terms of triumph and in terms of victory. He has come to do the will of the Father. This is the significance of his life. All of the living of his life is, if you like, subsumed under the giving of his life. I just finished a fairly substantial book uh, yesterday morning, I think it was, and when it finally got to the death of the two main characters, it's a nonfiction book, um, when it got to the death of the two main characters, it was over within about um, three or four pages. There had been some 300 pages before that, but when it finally came to the death, it was sort of over and done with. That's understandable. But when you read the Gospels and you reach the pivotal point here in the declaration of Christ's Messiahship, you discover just the reverse to be the case. And all of a sudden, the material begins to slow down. And as it goes almost into slow motion, we realize that the whole focus of things is on the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and its significance— that he dies not as an example, not as a martyr, but as we shall see later on, he dies as a substitute. Now, the phrase that he likes to use in designating himself, you will find there in verse 33. He refers to himself as the Son of Man, the Son of Man. When Peter says, you are the Christ, Jesus immediately says, and the Son of Man must do this and that. Why is Jesus doing that? Well, he's employing a phrase that has connotations that are vast in their significance. You can go back to Daniel chapter 7 and do your own homework on this. But it is a phrase that was commonly used as a messianic title. Jesus only ever used it of himself. It was never used of anyone else. And it was a title which combined both transcendent majesty and vicarious suffering. In other words, it was a term that allowed a vast compendium of truth to hang on it. In other words, it bore the weight of the vastness of what Jesus had come to do. And so, it is the ideal term. And so, he uses it routinely of himself. What is it that is to happen? Well, he tells us. We're going up to Jerusalem, he says. And then verse 33 unfolds, the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. I don't like that translation as much as the old King James Version, and I'll tell you why. Because while it is true that he was betrayed, in actual fact, the Greek word is paraditomai, or paraditotai, paradidon. Don't worry about it. But it means—let me worry about it. I need to. It means delivered up. Delivered up. So, the, the way in which he was delivered up by Judas was by betrayal, but he was, he was delivered up. And you have this progression here. So, you have Jesus delivered by Judas into the power of the Sanhedrin. You then have the Sanhedrin delivering Jesus into the power of Pilate. 
you then have Pilate delivering Jesus into the power of the soldiers. Now, why, why am I so concerned about the verb? Because it is the very verb that Paul uses when, in writing his theology in Romans, he explains what has been happening in the giving of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember this from Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Or earlier in Romans, in chapter 4 and verse 25, he was delivered over to death for our sins. So it is true to say that he was delivered into the hands of the Sanhedrin by Judas. He was delivered by them into the hands of Pilate. He was delivered by Pilate into the hands of the soldiers. But what is, what is fundamentally true is that behind all this delivering is the delivering of God the Father. That God the Father delivers Jesus up. This is such a mystery, isn't it? It doesn't confound the reality of what each of the characters is doing. It doesn't intrude upon the freedom of their, uh, the exercise of their will. But it makes clear that in the exercise of their will, they were fulfilling the purpose of God the Father from all of eternity to deliver up his Son as an atoning sacrifice for sin. So, in other words, it's just the grandeur of it that ought to grip us. And it finally gripped Peter when he's preaching on the day of Pentecost, and the penny has finally dropped for those characters. And now they're beginning as a result of the instruction of Jesus in those 40 days, clarifying for them and sending the Holy Spirit to fill them and so on, now Peter is ready to preach. And this is what he says, Men of Israel, listen to this. That's authority. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. In other words, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You were around, you saw what he did. Now, here we go. Verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. This man was delivered up according to the eternal plan and purpose of God. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You are responsible for his death. God is responsible for his death. Who is responsible? Isaiah 53, It pleased the Lord to bruise him, to crush him. How? Through the exercise of the human will, all of the jealousy, all of the hatred, all of the spite was real. And in the exercise of that, the very purpose of God is fulfilled because he was delivered up for our sakes. Wounded for me, wounded for me, there on that cross, you were wounded for me and gone my transgressions, and now I am free, all because Jesus was wounded for me. 
how you would think that the response of the disciples would be to fall on their faces in the dirt. And whatever they've managed to grasp out of all of this would crush them and produce in them adoration and expectation. But the very reverse is the case. So we move from Jesus explaining what was going to happen to him to the disciples' concern with what he might do for them. First, Jesus explains what's going to happen to him. Now the disciples express their concern as to what he might do for them. That's the second main heading, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, also known as the sons of thunder, came to him. And they sequester Jesus, and they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Well, Jesus says, What is it that you have in mind? Verse 36. They reply, verse 37, We like to have the best seats in the house when you come into your glory. One of the other gospel writers tells us that their mother was leading the charge. No surprise. My boys would like a nice seat, Jesus. They're good boys. Some people always have to sit in the right seat, don't they? Don't we? Nothing shows our pride quite as much as going to a wedding reception at which we have no significance at all, and you have to look for your, num- your, look for your table number. Let me give you a word of advice. Don't start at table one and work down. Start at table 22 and work up. It's far less painful. <laughs> Especially if you think you ought to be in the top two or three tables. Well, what do we have here from the disciples? This isn't loyalty. This isn't loyalty. This is just ambition. This is raw ambition. Not so with you. That's the title of our message today on Truth For Life. Alistair will continue this study tomorrow, so be sure to join us. In the meantime, if you haven't connected with Truth For Life on Facebook and Instagram, today's a great day for you to do that. On Facebook, you'll receive links to the program each day. That way you can easily share your favorite messages with friends and family. Simply search Truth For Life with Alistair Begg and then hit the like button. On Instagram, you'll enjoy thought-provoking quotes from Alistair, things that will help you reflect on God's Word every day. Search Alistair Begg, Truth For Life, and click follow. We consider it a privilege to serve as a source of clear, relevant Bible teaching for people all around the world. None of this would be possible if it weren't for support we receive from listeners like you. And when you donate today, we want to say thank you for your support by sending you a book by Alistair's friend, Gary Millar. It's a book titled Need to Know. The Bible gives us all the instructions we need to live God-honoring lives. But what does that look like practically? How do we navigate our daily routine? What does following Christ look like today with all of the changing technology and the trends in our culture? Gary Millar explains that it begins with knowing the God of creation and having a personal, intimate relationship with Him, and it involves living joyfully under His will and authority. The book Need to Know takes us step-by-step through a refresher course on living each day for Jesus. It's a perfect touch point for those of us well into the journey and a wonderful primer for those of us new to living out the gospel. Request your copy of Need to Know today when you donate or when you make your first monthly gift as a truth partner. 
Go to truthforlife.org slash donate or call 888-588-7884. I'm Bob Lapine. Tomorrow we'll continue this message about the dangers of pride and the biblical call to humility. Be sure to join us Friday. This daily program features the Bible teaching of Alistair Begg, and it's furnished by Truth For Life. Where the learning is for living.